Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, DeKalb County School Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris talks about the decision in returning to in-class instruction next month. We've been clear, we try to over-communicate and be very transparent in what goes into our decision-making process, um, that we are leading from a space of keeping our students and our staff safe. Uh, And we respect that everyone is voicing the opinion that they believe is best for their children. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first this, earlier today, the U.S. House of Representatives began debating a resolution to impeach President Donald Trump. The resolution states the president, quote, gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government, close quote. Longtime Georgia Republican Congressman Buddy Carter took to the House floor to voice his opposition. This was one of the saddest days of my life last Wednesday, Mr. Chairman. Our thoughts and our prayers are with the police officers and other law enforcement who carried out their duties on that tragic day, including officers Sicknick and Liebengood. Right now, our focus should be on healing healing our nation. With so many upset and dismayed at the actions of last week, it's our responsibility to chart a path forward to subdue the growing animosity and find ways to heal our country. Unfortunately, I don't believe this resolution will achieve those goals, especially seven days ahead of the inauguration. This is very serious and concerning effort during such a tense and fragile time in our country. I urge my colleagues to consider how this will further entrench people during such a tense time. Almost every member of the House Democratic Caucus co-sponsored the resolution. Meanwhile, following last week's insurrection, the Federal Bureau of Investigation is warning of threats against all 50 state capitals. This comes in the days leading up to President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he supports free speech but will not tolerate violence. Given the disgraceful un-American acts we saw last week in Washington, These gentlemen and their teams are fully prepared to deal with anything and everything that may happen in the days and weeks ahead. As you know, we welcome peaceful protests, as we did last summer. But let me be clear, law-breaking like we saw last week will not be tolerated here, period. Also, officials with Georgia's Department of Public Safety added the agency is well prepared to handle any threat. Also during this press conference, Governor Kemp acknowledged the high demand for COVID-19 vaccines in the state. Yes, the phone lines will be busy. Yes, the websites will certainly crash. There is simply vastly more Georgians that want the vaccine than can get it today. Georgia moved into phase 1A plus of COVID-19 vaccine administration this week, 
meaning those 65 and older and first responders are eligible for inoculation. This also means now there are more than 2 million Georgians who qualify for vaccination. Still, Georgia only has about 80,000 vaccine doses a week to distribute. Now, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey is asking for patience. The vaccine uh, is not as widely available as it will be months from now, but we will do everything we can to reach all those who want the vaccine as soon as we possibly can. And on this day, the Georgia Department of Public Health reported 145 newly confirmed coronavirus deaths. That's the highest COVID-19 death toll the department has reported in a single day. And to date, 10,444 Georgians have died due to the virus. In total, 648,694 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 45,177 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,799 are considered ICU admissions. And as always, our information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And in related news, House Speaker David Rostin began the second day of the legislative session yesterday revealing these COVID-19-related numbers. Seventy-four members of this body did not get tested that were present in the building. And that's a bipartisan count, by the way. All members of Georgia's General Assembly are required to wear masks and to get tested twice a week at the Capitol. Still, multiple Georgia lawmakers recently tested positive, including Senate Majority Leader Mike Dugan. Last year's session was suspended due to the spread of the virus. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. School districts in Georgia and across the country are grappling with how to keep students, educators, and other school personnel in an environment that could control the coronavirus. Now, some districts have chosen to continue with in-person instruction. Some have remained virtual. Others have opted for more of a hybrid model, which is a mixture of both. Earlier this week, we heard from Marietta City School Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. If at any point the data or their recommendations suggested that we needed to close, I would be quick to move in that direction. I also will say we're prepared to also pivot slightly differently depending on what the data tells us. Because it, it, it could be, yes, we can be open and it could be, yes, we could be virtual, but there also could be a middle ground where we have to explore kids coming only two days a week. Now we turn to the leader of another school district returning to Closer Look, DeKalb County School Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris. Superintendent, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope everything's going well for you. Yeah, we're all hanging in there, right? Mm-hmm. I recall when we first had you on the program and I remember you talked about what approach you would use in making a decision during this pandemic. Take a listen. No one can really predict what's going to happen, but it will be data-driven and it will be centered on the safety of our students uh, and our staff. So you told me data-driven and then safety for the students and the staff. Is that still at the core of how you all are approaching whether or not to have in-person, remain virtual, a hybrid of mix? 
Absolutely. And thank you so much for the clip, because that keeps us all honest. Um, and I'm really proud to say that DeKalb uh, County School District, we've been consistent in our approach. Um, our number one priority from the very beginning has been um, the safety uh, of both our students and our staff. Um, and we continue to follow the guidance from the CDC, um, which has evolved and shifted since the last time you and I spoke, mm -hmm. um, but it is still our approach. We are still following the guidance from the CDC and making all decisions um, in the best interest and safety of our students and our staff, even in an environment, as we know, with such polarizing views on what the, um, the best decision is. So as of right now, for listeners that don't know, students are attending mm -hmm. virtually only? Yes. All DeKalb County School District students are still fully um, in a virtual uh, setting. That is the decision that um, is best right now for our larger community. Um, and very important to share, you said at the top that these are decisions that superintendents are grappling with across the nation. Um, and and uh, I take this decision extremely seriously and it's not one that I make in isolation. We've had a COVID-19 task force from day one, um, as well as our medical advisory committee um, and, and following the guidance from the CDC again is really that we focus on our ability to uh, identify, implement, uh, and monitor the mitigation strategies uh, as well as consider the positivity rate um, in, our, in our area. I'm sure you hear from parents and staff who are concerned about returning to in-person instruction, but I also know there's concerns call it pressure if you want, from parents who say, look, we need to have the kids in the classroom. How do you balance yes. all of that? And what do you take in consideration from both sides? Yes. Well, thank you so much for that question. Um, uh, yes, in a, a beautifully diverse uh, community such as uh, DeKalb County, we should expect uh, not only uh, diversity in the traditional ways, but also diversity of thought. And we see that very clearly um, in the varied positions on whether or not we return to school. I respect and I hope that I have uh, demonstrated that, I have communicated that, that I respect uh, the position um, on all sides. Uh, but you, uh, what we have decided to do and we have been consistent that we would follow the guidance from the CDC. Uh, in addition to that, working very closely with our COVID-19 task force, which has a representation uh, of all of our internal stakeholders on every level of the organization, as well as our medical advisory committee. So uh, we, we're, we've been clear, we try to over communicate and be very transparent in what goes into our decision making process. Um, that we are leading from a space of keeping our students and our staff safe. Uh, and we respect that everyone is voicing the opinion that they believe is best for their children. Uh, but ultimately, we have to have a roadmap because otherwise we'd be bouncing back and forth um, without uh, clarity on how we're making our decisions. What have been some of the challenges with the virtual platform because I we received some emails from parents who are saying one of the frustrations they have is that according to the parents with DeKalb County is that 
there's little or no notice to parents when you're going to have these, I guess, what is it, asynchronous learning days that are taking place? Mm-hmm. Um, that comes as a surprise to me, uh, but it's it's helpful to have that information and know that parents are not receiving that information. Uh, we try to communicate every Friday. I've, I've started a superintendent newsletter that goes out. Um, to everyone who subscribes, uh, we make sure that we keep an update on any changes to the schedule uh, in that newsletter. We also update the website regularly uh, where parents can go and they can find out any changes. Uh, we have just the Wednesdays are asynchronous days, mm-hmm. so parents should know that. That's been since the start of school. Um, and we use that day to provide extra tutorials and small group instruction for children who may be struggling the rest of the week. So it's asynchronous for the students, but some students will be identified and called into sessions with their teachers. The week of January 4th was a change in this schedule, and that was because of what I was hearing from the teachers in terms of needing additional time to get comfortable returning back to the uh, to the schoolhouse. As you Remember, uh, most of our teachers have not been back into the school building since March. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we appreciate the parents' flexibility. Um, uh, Again, concerned to hear that they did not receive the adequate notice about that. Um, And I will take that as um, a food for thought and and make sure that we improve um, on communicating those those matters uh, moving forward. Well, moving forward, let's look at January 19th because that is a, a date and correct me if I'm wrong, where some students in specific grades can opt for in-person learning. Is that correct? Uh, no, ma'am. We actually did a presentation at our board meeting, as we've promised all along that each board meeting we would give an update on our return to face-to-face. So you've pushed it back then? Yes, okay. yes. That was what we shared uh, at the board meeting. Um, that's That'll be in the newsletter. It, it, we, we made a video that we sent out to all stakeholders yesterday, again, using um, a new mode of communication, um, as well as sent out a letter to all stakeholders. What went into that decision to push back the January 19th date was, again, looking at the CDC guidance. So, The first is our ability to properly implement the mitigation strategies. That includes uh, the uh, PPE being in the buildings, making sure the buildings uh, are able to contribute to adequate social distancing, um, et cetera. Uh, After visiting a number of buildings, I could see that there were some that we need to do additional work in. Hmm. Additionally, the number of teachers who uh, applied for the hardship waiver, which was an allowance we gave our teachers who needed a a little bit more time to get their affairs in order to properly um, and fully return, um, as well as looking at the uh, positivity rate in DeKalb right now. And as of yesterday, it was uh, 14.7. And we know that the CDC has identified anything over 10% as being in the high range area. So we made a decision to push back the uh, mandatory quote unquote return for teachers to February 3rd. That is what we announced at the board meeting. February 3rd, the hardship waiver ends on February 2nd. 
and teachers will be expected back into the buildings February 3rd as of now. And then as you've noted, things change in our environment and we will continue to look at the numbers and we will continue to assess our readiness um, in terms of our ability to properly implement the mitigation strategies. But we are as a school community tracking towards February 3rd for the teachers. And then our return to school plan for students has been consistent that students would return uh, two weeks after that. And we've made a commitment to notify our families on February 3rd about when students will return to the building. Parents will have the option not to opt in for the or it's it's mandatory. That's what you want. Thank you so much for asking that question. We have made a commitment from the very beginning that parents will be able to make the choice that is best for their families. So uh, uh, something we're engaged in right now is providing professional development for teachers on what we call concurrent instruction so that teachers will be prepared and have the necessary technology in their classrooms to be able to teach both the students who are in person as well as those who are virtual. So families in DeKalb will continue to have that choice through the entire school year. Let me ask you this then, because you mentioned these buildings. Will all the buildings be up to code in terms of a new air filtration system, what have you? Will all these buildings be ready as well? If you're going to mandate that the teachers come in, then you have to make sure that the buildings, that the environment that they're going to be working in is also, uh, I guess, prepared in a sense. Is that the case? Oh, yes, yes. I've been walking the buildings myself. (laughs) I went out on January 4th. I I visited other buildings throughout the week. Um, I I had our new chief operating officer out with me. Uh, He was on top of roofs and, and, and other things, really assessing the readiness of all of our buildings. At the board meeting on, on January 11th, and we can find this information on our website as well, we have created a new tiered system to assess the readiness of every building. Uh, we have uh, a, a, you know, assessed needs in buildings by safety, uh, all the way to cosmetic things that need to be put in place. And so we are now putting all our efforts on any safety concerns that we have to ensure and certify to teachers that if they um, are, are returning to a building, that it's safe. If you don't mind me sharing one specific example, I was at one school where we had uh, a close to 50% of the teachers who uh, had opted to apply for the waiver. And when I asked the principal, what was the the major concern that the teachers had? uh, She expressed that the teachers were uh, afraid of the air quality in the building, that this had been a long-term issue uh, predating me. And I said, well, what would make them feel more comfortable? And she said, an air quality study. Mm -hmm. So we immediately issued that um, to make that available so that teachers, if that's what was kind of holding them back from feeling as though they could return safely, we wanted to make sure that that air quality study was completed um, so that they can feel assured that they're returning to a building um, that's safe for them to be working. Um, And these are all the things that we're working on right now so that we want to be, you know, it's a different approach than others have taken, right? 
It isn't black or white. It's what we are all trying to figure out something new together. And we want to do it in a way that um, is compassionate and that is flexible and that we're all being patient. And that I, I, I do ask for the community to also allow for us. I know we're short on time. I'll just get this last question in for the educator or that staff member whose waiver may not be approved or considered. What happens to that DeKalb County, DeKalb County Schools employee? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. Uh, the waivers did not have an approval process. They just had to simply complete it so that we would know who would be returning and who not. So there are no consequences. And, and they, there were no consequences. And my messaging has been clear that while I was excited to see so many teachers return, I respect every teacher who applied for a waiver for making the choice that was best for their family at this time. That has given the teachers a 30-day reprieve to get whatever issues they had in order. If it's a medically related issue, then they still have the course of applying for an ADA um, accommodation. But we are, our priority, you know, is the safety of our students and staff. It's also getting our children back into the building. We know we have some uh, fragile students. We have some students who um, are not excelling in the virtual space. We have students who are uh, experiencing mental and emotional um, impacts of being in the virtual space. And we want, we want them to be um, in our school buildings and we wanna do everything we can to first get them safe uh, for the return of the teachers and the students and have all those practices in place. Um, but we want to continue to work to get our children back in school. And finally, I know you're looking at the DeKalb County positivity rate, which could be different from the DeKalb County schools environment positivity rate. Is there a metric that you'll use to determine maybe a particular school or a classroom will have to close and go back to virtual? Is it one confirmed case, two, in uh, yes. contract, maybe perhaps contact tracing indicates that an individual was at an event or what have you, what will you use? What metric will you use to make that decision? Mm -hmm. We continue to work with the DeKalb uh, Board of Health on the guidance around um, uh, when we have a positive case. We have a clear system in place. We've been implementing that um, since uh, March even in terms of our administrative buildings uh, or related to our athletic programs. Um, we've been following that very closely. We have a phenomenal Dr. Ford from the DeKalb um, Health Department. She is a member of our medical advisory team, uh, works very closely with us. Uh, um, uh, Miss Joanne Harris, who runs our uh, nurses in, in DeKalb, also working very closely, very tightly. We have clear protocols in place um, in terms of when we have a positive case and what the next course of action is. So I, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, really uh, showing a lot of respect to, to that group that has been leading that work uh, to date. Students and, st students and staff, when they return, Mask will be required, I'm assuming? Oh, ab absolutely. Masks are required. Uh, 
the uh, hand sanitizing stations. Uh, and these are all things that we're going out to check and make sure they are in place. And then we have some phenomenal, phenomenal principals that have done extraordinary things. We're making videos to just release to the public to see the level of preparation uh, to um, ensure that we don't have areas where people are congregating. Uh, they have QR codes so we know who was in what space at what time and if there's a positive case to see, you know, for the uh, contact tracing. We have just, we've been doing the work, okay? <laughs> and I am so proud of this team. I, I am so proud of the work that they're putting in. Um, and when we are able to open the doors and have our children come back, parents should feel 100% comfortable that we have done everything we can to ensure that we're creating a safe space. Do you feel 100% comfortable that y'all have done everything? And that's my final that we're question. Doing, that we're doing everything. That's why our, 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 our students are not back in the building yet. But we are, when we have the date and we welcome our students back into the building, it will be because I feel 100% sure that we are ready for them to be safe in those buildings. One of those students is my, my own son. Okay, and what I want for him is what I want for all of the children. DeKalb County Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's always great to be in community with you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A new year, and with it, hope that the two approved vaccines will mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. But right now, the nation as a whole is going in the other direction. Actually, projections from national public health officials believe January is tracking to be the deadliest month of COVID-19 to date. Also increasing the demand for nurses. In fact, many hospitals nationwide have reported a shortage of healthcare workers, and that includes qualified nurses. But understand this, even before the pandemic, there was a nationwide shortage of nurses. That was according to the American Association of Colleges and Nursing. By 2030, the U.S. healthcare system could be lacking more than 510,000 registered nurses. And there's another issue the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted as well, a lack of diversity within the field. Now, in Georgia, only about 10 percent of registered nurses identify as black and 9 percent of the total nursing population identifies as male, according to state labor data. There's a new scholarship program at Clayton State University that's looking to address all of this. And joining me now with more information is Dr. Lisa Eichelberger, Dean of the College of Health at Clayton State University. Dean Eichelberger, thank you so much for taking the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and thank you so much for inviting me. Glad to be with you here today. 
Before we get into the specifics of the program, as I mentioned, the nation was facing a nursing shortage even before the pandemic. Through your viewpoint, any idea why? Well, um, yeah, nursing is a is a challenging career, and uh, and healthcare in general is challenging. You know, it's demanding uh, physically and emotionally, and I think you only have to. That's been highlighted certainly by the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and, and it's cyclical in nature too. You know, I've been in nursing 40 years. And so we've seen the, the ebb and flow of uh, the demand for nursing as well as the supply and interest. And um, we are fem- female dominated, as you've mentioned in the statistics that you've uh, uh, just uh, alluded to there. And so since I've been in nursing, for, as I've said, for 40 years, I've seen careers open up tremendously for females. Mm-hmm. And so um, while, you know, when I was thinking about careers, you know, there were much less uh, broadly applicable. And so, you know, when I was growing up, careers were teachers, mm-hmm. primarily teachers and and uh, and nursing. Those were the two of the most popular ones for uh, females. Uh, now, you know, we've seen many of the professions become female dominated, you know, including uh, physicians and, and law mm-hmm. and pharmacy, which were male dominated when I was choosing a career. So that's part of it. But, you know, nursing is, is really a calling. People have to be drawn to this. So not just anybody can can decide, oh, I think I'll uh, choose nursing. So it's a complicated career choice mm-hmm. and one where people have to truly be led, I think. It was a calling for you, Dean? It's It certainly was. I always knew I wanted to help people. Um, and I, I went to, to a university uh, even back in the 70s when most people did not get baccalaureate degrees uh, as their first entry level. I did, which was a little unusual, but I knew that for, for me, I felt that uh, it was God's calling for me mm-hmm. to go and to help people. And, um, and it's a career that I have loved and, and I've been very richly rewarded for that decision. You and I both know we're in a climate now where there's so much focus on student loan debt. And when you talk about for some specific areas of concentration, you know, that student debt could be a little bit higher because of additional classes or courses. Or do you think that also could be a reason as to why some may not choose a nursing field or it could be any related health and medical field? Because, you know, student loan debt, to even think about it for some is just, you know, it's overwhelming. Well, I think student loan and, and the cost of higher education is real, and we've seen that grow. Um, but if you look at your career over your lifespan, there's no better investment than higher education. Mm-hmm. We know from from the data that investing in uh, a college education, there's no better return on that investment. And certainly, if you look at an investment in nursing, um, there's no better way to recoup that money. If you look at the U.S. News and World Report in terms of uh, best careers Mm -hmm. uh, for the past, I I don't even know how many years they've been doing that that study, but the best careers to choose, eight out of the the 10 have been in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so there is no better job than uh, in terms of security 
and uh, satisfaction as well, as well as economics in terms of return on your investment in terms uh, of Clayton State. If they survey um, the highest paying graduates, the jobs that have the highest return, the best paying jobs, once you graduate from college at Clayton <laughs> State, the graduates who have the best incomes are the registered nurses at Clayton State. So in terms of student debts and repaying your student loans, there is loan forgiveness as well. Once you graduate, if you go to work in an underserved area, you can get federal loan forgiveness just mm -hmm. like you can for teachers. Um, so there's ways to pay back your loans, but you're going to make a, an average salary of $65,000 once mm -hmm. you graduate, once when you start from day one. So you're going to have the income to pay back that uh, student loan. It's a wonderful way to get that education. And then you're going to have many, many years in which to be able to pay off that student debt. So it's a it's a win-win for you. Not only are you going to have a career that's going to be satisfactory, but you're going to have a way to pay back that loan. So I wouldn't be concerned about that, mm -hmm. but it's also going to give you a great deal of satisfaction. Have you all seen an increase in the number of students entering this concentration? I know we're going to talk about you all launching a new program here, but let's say the last few years, what have you noticed in terms of, of students' interest in nursing? At Clayton State? We have always had tremendous interest in people wanting to become a nurse. As I've said before, it is cyclical. Uh, we've had more interest in certain years than we have others, but we have always had at least two to three times the number of applicants than we do uh, slots. Mm -hmm. um, some years it's more, um, than uh, two to three times, but we've always had two to three times the number of applicants. And, and that is consistent in Georgia. Now, in other parts of the country, it may be a little less than that, other parts more. But uh, <clears throat> we have always had more applicants than we have slots. It's too soon, I think, for us to tell what has happened as a result of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, because we, you know, we're just now getting into the to the applications for upcoming slots, but the admiration, um, you know, the Gallup poll nurses have been the most admired and trusted professionals for 19 years running, ever since nurses entered the Gallup poll, mm -hmm. um, and they asked about what the most trusted profession is and admired. Nurses have been there except for one year in 2001 when firefighters beat us for um, 9/11 after 9-11. Mm. Um, but this year they ranked the highest that they've ever ranked at 90% of trustworthy and most admired. So I think we are going to see that spike even more as a result of the, we don't know what the pandemic is going to do in terms of the current nursing workforce because of the stress and the post-traumatic stress that we expect and we're seeing in the profession as a result of the long hours and, um, and what they've endured or, and are enduring the frontline nurses as a result of this pandemic. So we're not sure what's going to happen to the profession as a result of what they're facing right now. If you just join us, I'm joined by Dr. Lisa Eichelberger. She's Dean of the College of Health at Clayton State University. We're talking about a new scholarship program that aims to increase the number of black men in nursing 
in Georgia. And Dean, you of all people, I know it's not lost on you that when we talk about the importance for patients of color when it comes to seeing health and support officials that look like them, that may be from their community, you know the importance of that. Quality of care for so many people of color can be directly tied to who they see when they go in as their primary care physician. So you all are trying to address this by increasing diversity in terms of the students. Did you all notice something in terms of lack of diversity in terms of students that are in the program? Because now you have this scholarship program. You're absolutely right. The U.S. Surgeon General, Louis Sullivan, way back in 2000. Three actually, mm-hmm. when he was Secretary of Hum- Health and Human Services, co- did a commission looking at d- diversity mm-hmm. in um, healthcare. They did the research and looked at uh, the shocking differences in care for minorities and underrepresented groups, and found just exactly what you were saying that there are differences in care for underrepresented groups, and that the care is different when patients receive care from uh, people that look like them. And so recommendations were made almost 20 years ago now that we start addressing the the missing persons. That was the name of the report in healthcare and that we do something about increasing the diversity um, within um, our ranks, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just nurses, but physicians, dentists and and, uh, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners. And so um, at Clayton State, we, we took that seriously. And uh, so we, um, through federal grants, uh, worked very hard to uh, increase the, the number of underrepresented graduates that we had. And we've done a really, really good job of, of doing that. And we, in fact, we graduate more uh, students of color than uh, any other school within the state. And we're very proud. Our students have been extremely successful. And of course, we have an under we have a baccalaureate program as well as mm-hmm. a nurse family nurse practitioner program. I also am one of the co-chairs of the Georgia Nursing Leadership Coalition, mm-hmm. which is a group of nurse leaders and nurse supportive organizations that work together to implement the the uh, recommendations of the Institute of Medicine's report on the future of nursing. And one of those is to increase the diversity within the nursing workforce. And so uh, we were granted a uh, grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation past October to focus on uh, increasing the number of black males Mm -hmm. in nursing. And so it's a partnership between nine organizations and uh, the two schools that are working with us, it's Clayton State University Mm -hmm. and Emory University. I'm I'm a consultant on that grant, and because we had worked with the Clayton County Fire Department, currently Clayton State University is working and knew about the Pathways um, program, which is an absolutely fantastic program Mm -hmm. that works with students in the Clayton County High School who are interested in health and becoming an EMT firefighter. Um, and with hopes of going on into nursing and then become a uh, family nurse practitioner. Um, Because I had worked with that program before, we made the partners, we connected that group. The idea of the grant is to mentor, take Black registered nurses, Mm -hmm. uh, male 
African-American nurses who are already working in the field and connect them with high school black males who are in the pathway program at the Clayton County Fire Department, give them a role model who's, who are already working in nursing and um, have them, give them a mentor um, while they're in high school and going through the EMT firefighter training and to work with them while they're in high school to help them see what it's like to be a registered nurse and or family nurse. Some of them are family nurse practitioners already. Some of them are RNs. And um, to help them see what it's like to be a male nurse already. And so we're really excited about it. It just kicked off in October. We have the pairs set up. And it's just gotten started and we're excited. Clayton State and Emory University are offering them scholarships. Uh, those that are pre-nursing, we've got pre-nursing students who haven't been admitted yet or haven't, are just starting taking their electives or prerequisite courses. And then we also have some, some students that are already in the nursing program uh, and they'll be given scholarships while they're in the program. And then the firefighter program students are learning how to become firefighters, paramedics. Mm -hmm. And once they have graduated from the program, the Clayton County Fire Department guarantees them jobs as uh, firefighter EMTs, making $45,000 a year. And then we, we hook them up and get them admitted into uh, the universities mm -hmm. and get them ready to start their pre-nursing courses. You all have also talked about that, listen, you also want to increase the number of, of Latin or Hispanic students entering the nursing field as well. And I know you just started. Are you able to assess just how well it's going or even there, if there are some challenges? You're right. There, This is phase one mm -hmm. of the grant. Um, we hope that this is our pilot project. We're starting with black males first. Mm -hmm. um, and then after the, the first year, year one, which is our pilot, then in year two, if everything goes well, then we, uh, we hoped on year two, we're going to add Hispanic mm -hmm. uh, students because there are Hispanic students in the Clayton County firefighter program. And we certainly want to, to open it up if we, if we can. And we do have um, uh, Latinx RNs that yeah. are, are willing to do that. And so that's phase two. And we are learning things. We originally had wanted to pair them one-on-one, -on -one, but we, we realized that that may be a little intense. And so we um, are now doing two for three. So it's going to be couplets or groups rather than just having one-on-one. -on -one. And so, yeah, we're learning and we're adjusting as we go. We haven't implemented the scholarship piece yet. So we spent the first quarter, you know, getting the, the mentees and mentors set up. So now in January is when we're going to implement the scholarships. And we're doing surveys. We're asking them what kind of programs that they would like. It's all virtual. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing background checks on everybody. We're paying for their internet connections to help them, you know, make sure that they can be virtual mm -hmm. and uh, check in. We set up an advisory board that is involving a variety of people to give us input. So we're learning things and we'll learn things in year one that will change and implement other changes, you know, for next year. And finally, Dean Eichelberger, when we started this conversation, you talked about the passion 
and this being a calling. I want to ask you, how did you balance that? And I know there were some tough days for you as a nurse, too. And you mentioned the pandemic, and I can't even imagine what that's like for so many of our healthcare workers. How did you balance the mental toll? And then how did you take care of yourself through all of that? Um, you know, we in the, at the with the Georgia Nurses Association, we they immediately set up a COVID rapid response team of nurse leaders, and that um, put into place some programs, resiliency team, uh, to offer um, support sessions free of charge for nurses where they could call in. They had a psychiatric clinical nurse specialist counselors to help nurses be available. The hospitals did a, get, did as good a job as they could do, as overwhelmed as they were trying to take care of patients. So our professional nursing organizations tried. Uh, GNA is really to be commended, I think, for you know reaching out and trying to touch base with each one of them, provide resources to let them know that, that they, people were there to listen. And I think that was the biggest thing is to try to teach them some resiliency skills and uh, to help li- to listen, mm-hmm. to let them know that they weren't alone. Uh, they weren't by themselves. They weren't going through this alone. And then to try to um, put in place some programs that are going to be there to help them decompress and to pick up the pieces when this when the dust settles, when things slow down, because, you know, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you know, it's all hands on deck. You're, you're paddling as fast as you can right now. It's going to be when things eventually s- stop and slow down and that they're really going to need some intensive therapy. So we're working on it and hopefully we'll be able to, to help them when they really need the in that small quietness when they're going to really need it. But how did you deal with it when you were a nurse? You had to have some tough days. You know, I think nurses are notorious for trying to take care of everybody else besides themselves. Okay. I, I think you sometimes you just have to, for me, I finally had to say, I can't do this. I got to the point where I was overwhelmed because I was trying to do so much. And so I finally just had to say, you know, I can't do this. I'm going to have to say no to this. And that was really difficult. But understanding that that was part of of taking care of yourself. So that's how I did it, was to say, you know, there'll be somebody else that can do that because there won't be enough left of me to do anything if if I don't take care of myself. Dr. Lisa Eichelberger is Dean of the College of Health at Clayton State University. And we were talking about ways that the university plans to increase the number of students entering the nursing field. Dr. Eichelberger, thank you so much for taking the time as always. And thank you for what so many of your colleagues have been doing throughout all of this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. And if you missed any of today's conversations and segments, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, always on demand, just subscribe to Closer Look with Rose Scott wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.